Uh, if you've got a Bible, why don't you grab it and we'll go to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this morning, we are going to begin a three-week journey to Easter. And uh, we are in the middle of a season uh, called Lent that historically the church has observed for centuries now. And um, it's a season of 40 days patterned after Jesus' time in the wilderness, a time of prayer and fasting, where he was uh, basically in a place of complete dependency upon God. And so for centuries, Christians have been setting aside these 40 days leading up to Lent as a time of prayer, a time of fasting, a time of creating space to experience more of God's power and presence in our lives. And so um, we're kind of jumping in on the tail end of the season of Lent, but thought for these three weeks, um, we, would, we would focus our attention on learning how to pray. And so uh, the series we're going to dive into is called Praying with Jesus, and uh, my hope is to give us a vision as well as a set of tools that would help us to be better prayers. And uh, we'll talk about that over the next couple weeks. And in some ways, the vision of prayer and some of the practices that I'll propose are going to be new. Not new in terms of history, um, but maybe new for many of us. And so this week, we're, we're going to do some theology. We're going to just do some, some beefy theology, and then next week, we're going to flesh it out through practice. And so we'll start in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so what we have here is the Apostle Paul writing this letter to an early community of Christ followers in Corinth. And he comes to this place where he clearly and passionately lays out what we would call the gospel. The good news that in Jesus Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself. And so you'll notice in that passage, Paul repeatedly uses this word reconciliation to describe God's mission in the world or to describe what it is that God is actively doing in the world. Reconciliation. It's a word that can be understood as the holistic repair of damaged relationships. Taking all those relationships in our world that have, been, that have been destroyed by sin and by evil and by selfishness and by greed. Relationship between us and God, 
between us and each other, between us and ourselves, and us and the rest of creation, all these damaged relationships, Paul is saying the good news is that in Jesus, God is reconciling, holistically repairing all these damaged relationships. That is what he's up to. That's God's mission in the world. And since it's God's mission in the world, it's also the calling or the vocation of God's people that we are to be ambassadors of this kingdom, ministers of reconciliation. He says we've been given the message and the ministry of reconciliation, essentially meaning we are called to join Jesus on his mission of making all things new. But in Paul's mind, for us to carry out the ministry of reconciliation, to become the kind of people that the world needs most, something needs to happen in us first. And that is that we must first be reconciled to God. That we, as humanity, need to have our damaged relationship with God holistically repaired and made new brought together in the way that it was always supposed to be. And so where we'll start this morning is is with this question, what does that mean? And what might that look like for us as a community of Christ followers to be reconciled to God, to live in right relationship with him? Or from God's perspective, maybe the better way to ask it is, what kind of relationship does God desire to have with us? What is his dream? What is his vision? What is his heart and hope for humanity? What is he working towards through this incredible gospel? What does it look like to be reconciled to God? I want to show you a movie clip, which in preaching 101, they tell you never to do, because if it's an interesting movie clip, then everyone's going to want to just keep watching the movie and be disappointed when they have to keep listening to you. So I rarely do this, but this one is so helpful. It's from a movie called The Way, Way Back. Came out three or four years ago, had the chance to see it when I was down at Sundance in Salt Lake, saw it when it first came out. And the opening scene of this movie is what we're going to watch, which is about three minutes. And it's this 14-year-old kid named Duncan who's uh, on his way to spend the summer with his family at his mom's boyfriend's beach house. And the mom's boyfriend is played by the jerkiest version of Steve Carell you've ever seen. And um, the opening scene of the movie is Steve Carell driving this vintage station wagon and Duncan, the 14-year-old kid, sitting in the way, way back. Do you remember that in the old station wagons? Okay, so uh, let's watch this. The first three minutes of the way, way back. Duncan. Duncan. Duncan, are you sleeping? No. Let me ask you something. On a scale of one to 10, what do you think you are? Duncan, I'm asking you how you see yourself. Scale of one to 10. I don't know. I can't hear you, bud. You have to speak up. I don't know. What, what don't you know? How you see yourself? You don't have any opinion.
I'm just asking. Pick any number, scale of one to 10. Just, just shout it out, just say a number. A six. A what? A six. I think you're a three. You know why I think you're a three? You know what would make me say that? No. You don't know? You have no idea? No. I, you gotta speak up, buddy. No! Well, since I've been dating your mom, I don't see you putting yourself out there, bud. Meeting kids your own age? And from what your mom tells me, you just seem content to hang around her apartment? Is that a fair assessment? You're just happy to not do anything? Because, damn, that's... To me, that is a three. But the good news, I'm here to tell you, is that there are going to be plenty of kids, plenty of opportunities for you to take advantage of at my beach house this summer. It's a big summer for all of us, really. You, your mom, me, Steph. One day, we could become a family. So what do you say? Let's try to get that score up, huh? Aim higher than a three? That sound good? You up for that, buddy? <laughs> Duncan. That's brutal, huh? Now you want to watch the rest of the movie, don't you? See, that's what I did. You should, actually. It's good. Um, the reason I show that is because I think for many of us, if we're honest, this is what it feels like to be a Christian sometimes. That we tend to think of our relationship with God as a sliding scale of approval based on our performance. That we tend to think of God as this scorekeeper who we know deep down that he loves us but we have this fear that he's disappointed in us. That we're not doing as well as we think we are. So no one's ever explicitly taught us this growing up in the faith or whatever church we've been part of, but we've picked up this perspective that God's rating of me today is based on my performance yesterday. And so for some Christians, performance looks like piety. I'm going to read the King James for three hours every morning. I'm going to pray for all the missionaries. I'm only going to watch movies starring Kirk Cameron. I'm going to put a doily on my wife's head and put my kids in a bunker and wait for the rapture, right? For other Christians, performance looks like activism, right? I'm going to ditch the American dream. I'm going to go on a trip to Africa. I'm going to buy fair trade. I'm going to get on board with whatever the justice issue of the day is. I'm going to be super offended by anyone who's not as enlightened as me, right? And it's not all bad stuff, but you can see quickly how through either piety or activism or all different other ways of trying to live out our faith, it's simply a way of trying to get our number up, hoping that God will be impressed with us not disappointed with us. And for me, I know that this is 
a big part of why a lot of people I know have left Christianity altogether. Either because they're tired of always feeling guilty about never living up to what they perceive as God's expectations, and so it's easier just to ditch the whole thing, or because they're tired of all the phoniness and hypocrisy that goes along with trying to maintain this image that your number's higher than it actually is. And so they just peace out. Now, that's obviously not what Jesus had in mind when he invites us to follow him. So what's the remedy to this performance-based Christianity? Well, I'm going to start by turning it a little bit tighter real quick. Um, if you know your Bible, the first four chapters of the New, or first four books of the New Testament are the Gospels, kind of the, uh, the biographies of Jesus. And the first three Gospels are called what? Synoptics, meaning they're largely synced up that they tell the story of Jesus through a similar lens. In fact, they tell many of the same stories about Jesus uh, in the same ways, okay? So then you have the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, which comes along and kind of tells the Jesus story in a really different way. So you could think about it like four news stations, and the first three are kind of the major mainstream, ABC, NBC, CBS. You could flip on any of those stations any given night, and you're largely going to get the same stories, the same angle, the same coverage. And then you have this from out of left field station, I don't know, we could call it Fox News or something like that, that comes out and says, <laughs> tells the story from a really different perspective. BBC, you could also say, if Fox is offensive for whatever reason. So that's the Gospel of John and the Synoptics. These first three books that are the foundation of the Christian story, the introduction to the life and person and work of Jesus, the synoptics, and then John comes in. So on my last day of research, a couple months ago, before I sat down to start writing my final paper, as I was studying through the Gospels, I came to a, what at the time was sort of a disturbing observation. And that is this. By the way, you might misunderstand what I'm about to say. If you do, that's all right. Do me a favor and don't try to misunderstand, okay? <laughs> Deal? What I came to observe is that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's not a single verse that mentions God's love for us. Nowhere in Matthew, Mark, or Luke are we told that God loves us. And I come across that and go, huh, that seems noteworthy. Because I understand that the foundation of what it is to be a Christian, or even what it is to be a human, is to be somebody who's loved by God. Now, of course, when you get to John, we get that. That God so loved the world, and the love of God is clearly communicated, and especially later on in Paul's writings, we get this sense that we are loved by God as well. But the way the gospel writers tell this story, it's almost like this story isn't primarily about us. The way the gospel writers tell the story is primarily the story of the love between a father and a son. 
So in all three of the synoptics, we get towards the beginning this baptism story where Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove from heaven and you hear this voice of the Father speaking, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then all three synoptic stories also later on tell the story of Jesus' transfiguration. AJ preached out of that several weeks ago. And the same thing happens. In this glorious transcendent moment in human history, the father affirms, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. The gospels primarily tell the story of the love between a father and a son. And I would argue that the typical American evangelical understanding of salvation includes a long list of things that we receive from Jesus. That when we pray the prayer or raise our hand or walk the aisle or trust Christ, whatever that looks like, we get a whole bunch of stuff as a result of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. What do we get? We get our sins forgiven, right? We get to go to heaven when we die, and so forth. That Jesus becomes the means to all these benefits of salvation. That's how a lot of Christians think of salvation. Jesus gives me a bunch of stuff, but we fail to grasp the good news that there's this profound beauty and mystery to the gospel that starts with the fact that Jesus isn't just the one who gives us this long list of things, that Jesus himself is the one whom we receive. God has given himself to us in Christ. And so the impression we get far too often is that salvation is reducible to this list of benefits or gifts of Christ in isolation from the fullness of Christ's very life and person. We get him. So he's not simply the means to the end of our salvation. He is the end in and of himself. The good news of the gospel is that we receive Christ. Okay, listen to how the reformer John Calvin talks about this. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Therefore, to share in what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. For all that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. Okay, I told you we we're going to do some theology this morning. The theological term that we use to describe receiving Christ is union. Central to the gospel message is that we are united with Jesus. What Calvin says is made one body or one flesh with him. And it's a collective phrase, union with Christ that encompasses a vast number of terms and expressions and images in the New Testament that refer to the oneness that we, as Christians, have been given with Jesus. 
And so the most common of these expressions is Paul's phrase, in Christ, which occurs some 164 times in his writing. Like nearly every imaginable aspect of God's work in the lives of his people is described by Paul in terms of our union with Christ. Okay, let me share a few examples. We've been, we have eternal life in Christ. We are justified in Christ. We are glorified in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. We are called in Christ. We are made alive in Christ. We are made new creation in Christ. We are adopted as children of God in Christ. We are elected in Christ. And we are raised from the dead with Christ. Look for it. When you read the writings of Paul, the language of in Christ, or also Christ in us, or many times as well, that we are in him and he is in us. All of these are seeking to describe this profound and beautiful mystery that God is reconciling us to himself by including us in the very person of Jesus. We receive Christ. We become one with him. In fact, this notion is so embedded in Paul's thought that it's simply the way he talks about what it means to be Christian. Paul never uses the term Christian. But 164 times he refers to those who are in Christ or in the Lord as if that phrase is simply what it means to be Christian. And so clearly what I'm not saying is that for some Christians you can work your way up God's sliding scale of approval and become somebody who's in Christ. What I'm saying is that the Bible teaches that this is already true of all Christians. In fact, it is what it means to be Christian. We are those who have been united, joined together, mysteriously unified with Jesus himself, whether we know it or not. And so this means that those who have been saved by grace through faith into glorious union with Jesus, what that means is that everything that's true about Christ is now true about us. The gospel is that his biography becomes ours. His resume becomes ours. His record and performance becomes ours. And above all, his relationship with the Father becomes ours as well. So here's the good news. When you read through the Synoptic Gospels and don't see anything mentioned about God's love for you, there's actually something even better. That the way the Father feels about the Son is now the way the Father feels about you. And what this means is that there is no sliding scale of approval that we're trying to navigate in our walk with Christ. It means 
that God's view of me today isn't dependent on my performance yesterday. It means that God sees me the exact same way he sees his only begotten son, Jesus, because I am in him and he is in me. That's good news, isn't it? So if you ever wonder how God feels about you or what, how much the Father loves you, simply think about how does the Father feel about the Son? How much does God the Father love Jesus? And that's where you live. That's who you are as those who are in Christ. And so when we talk about being reconciled to God, having a severed relationship with God, being holistically repaired, this is what we're talking about, a complete and total renovation. We used to be God's strangers. We used to be God's enemies. We used to be those who were trying to, based on our own good works or performance or whatever, come to a place of good standing with God. But we have been brought near to the Father, as near as Jesus himself is. Because the Son is one with the Father, we are joined with the Son, and we are therefore joined with the Father in the exact same way. And because the Spirit's the mediator of the love between the Father and the Son, we now are also included in the life, the love, the fellowship, the intimacy and joy and mission of the Triune God. So think about how Jesus starts the Lord's Prayer. We'll talk about this in depth next week. But when his disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. And he starts with, our Father. What Jesus is doing is saying, my Father is now your Father. He is inviting his disciples to pray together with him to our Father. It's a beautiful, beautiful invitation. So everything that's true about Christ is true about us. And this is mysterious, I get that. Logically, it's hard to pen out because I'm going, if his biography is my biography, that doesn't make sense because I never was crucified and I never rose again. Paul says you were. We have been crucified in Christ. We have been raised from the dead with Christ. That's how deep this goes. We have been united with him from the beginning. And again, this is essentially what it means to be Christian. Here's another way of looking at it. Let me show you an icon by Rublev. This is from Genesis 18, and it's the story of the three strangers who uh, Rublev takes a stab and says maybe there was a, or these three visitors were actually the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now it's hard to tell all what's going on in this picture, but what you have, and I could do a, maybe I will, do a whole sermon on this painting sometime. It's amazing. What you have is this depiction of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit from left to right, and all of them with identical faces, and identical hair, identical bodies, showing the oneness, the unity of the Godhead. But then you also have some distinction. They're dressed differently. 
They're kind of positioned differently in relation to one another. And you can barely see there's different uh, objects behind them. A house behind the Father representing home, a tree behind the Son representing the cross, and a mountain behind the Spirit representing the place where earth meets heaven. And I could go into detail about even the very angle of their heads and what that communicates in their relationship to one another. But what I would simply call our attention to for now is that there's three members of this Godhead and there's four sides to the table. And it would seem to me that the artist intentionally leaves the open seat facing the viewer. Inviting us to pull up a chair, to join the dance, to become part of this beautiful, communal, relational God. This is how 2 Peter chapter 1 talks about it. He says, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and, our, and Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge to him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now listen to this. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in this world caused by evil desires. You catch what he said there? The gospel is that we are invited to participate in the divine nature. We are invited to enter in and to enjoy the life-giving fullness of relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit, the same relationship that Christ himself as the Son of God, God the Son, has enjoyed from all eternity past. Go back to the picture real quick. Where is the empty seat at the table? It's mirroring Christ. And for any of us that are intimidated by the idea that we get to participate in the divine, I like to think of Jesus simply saying, watch me, do what I do. Let my let the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that empowered me, empower you. And let your life point to the Father the same way mine does. Watch me. Learn from me. I got you. If we're honest, there's part of this whole thing that's a little bit scary. Now again, in, in light of don't try to misunderstand me, do we become God? Do we become part of the Trinity? Is it now a God quad that like Pete's the fourth member? Like let's hope that's not true, right? But we are invited to participate in this glorious union. And there's part of that that's terrifying. There's part of that, us that almost hopes that that isn't true because it's so different than how we're used to operating on that sliding scale of approval. And for some of us, the religious motivation of being good has become so central to our idea of Christianity that it's pretty threatening to have someone tell you that your standing before God isn't affected by any of it, right? So the nature of salvation is that we are included in Christ's relationship with the Father. That'll become the foundation of this entire series for the next couple weeks. 
It'll inform then what prayer is and how we pray. That we are included in Christ's relationship with the Father. At some point during the Christmas season in our Advent series, I shared Soren Kierkegaard's parable of the king and the peasant maiden. Hopefully you remember that. And it's the story of this great king who falls in love with this uh, poor maiden in his kingdom and decides that he wants to be with her and realizes that the only way that they can ever actually have the true loving relationship he desires is for him to leave his throne and leave his castle and leave his position of authority and come down into her world to become like her so that they could be together on equal terms. And we looked at it at Christmas as a picture of this is incarnation. This is what Christ has done, leaving the comfort and security of heaven and eternal relationship with Father and Spirit, becoming human to find for himself a bride, the people of God. So I've known and loved and told that story many times over the years, but until recently, actually until about a month ago, I'd never read the rest of the chapter that Kierkegaard writes. I kind of stop at the parable and go, oh, it's a nice little Disney ending. Let's do that. But that's not actually how Kierkegaard tells the rest of the story. He basically says, what happens if the peasant maiden finds out what the king has done to be with her? Listen to how he talks about it. When an oak seed is planted in a clay pot, the pot breaks. When new wine is poured into old wineskins, they burst. What happens then when God the king plants himself in the frailty of a human being? Does he not become a new person and a new vessel? Oh, this becoming, how difficult it really is and how like birth itself, how terrifying. It is indeed less terrifying to fall upon one's face while the mountain tremble at, the, at God's voice than to sit with him in love as his equal. And yet God's longing is precisely to sit in this way. He's going, that's what this story is really about. The story of the king and the maiden, but the story of God and his people. This terrifying reality that if what we're talking about is true, that we have been mysteriously united with Christ, that we can't just go on living as we had before, that it's going to change everything, that this oak seed planted in a clay pot, this thing is going to shatter, and we're going to have to re-navigate everything if this is true. Kierkegaard's aren't honest enough to say, we would rather fall down flat and worship him than sit with him as equals. But that's what God desires. About a month ago, Ken and I were in Chicago and were invited to attend this event at the home of Jerry Root, one of the world's leading C.S. Lewis scholars. He has this, basically his version of the Inklings, where they sit around a fire pit and drink single malt and smoke scotch. Ken and I are both Christians, so we don't partake in those sorts of things. (laughs) 
But the rule for the night is that if it's your first time visiting the group, you have to read a poem. Okay? So I was freaked out about this because I'm not a poetry guy. I texted my friend Peter and said, do you have any good poems? Because I don't know any. And he texted me back and said, read a poem by Billy Collins called The Lanyard. Okay? Billy Collins, if you don't know, former poet laureate of the United States. Do you remember Lanyard's? from summer camp, the weird little things that you wove together. That's what this poem's about. But it's about a lot more than that. I'll read it for you. The other day, I was ricocheting slowly off the blue walls of this room, moving as if underwater from typewriter to piano, from bookshelf to an envelope lying on the floor, when I found myself in the L section of the dictionary where my eyes fell upon the word lanyard. No cookie nibbled by a French novelist could send one into the past more suddenly. A past where I sat at a workbench at a camp by a deep Adirondack lake, learning how to braid long, thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a gift for my mother. I'd never seen anyone use a lanyard, or wear one if that's what you did with them. But that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again until I had made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life and milk from her breasts, and I gave her a lanyard. She nursed me in many a sick room, lifted spoons of medicine to my lips, laid cold face cloths on my forehead, and then led me out into the airy light and taught me to walk and swim and I, in turn, presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said, and here is clothing and a good education, and here is your lanyard, I replied, which I made with a little help from a counselor. Here is a breathing body and a beating heart, strong legs, bones, and teeth, and two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered, and here, I said, is the lanyard I made at camp. And here, I wish to say to her now, is a smaller gift. Not the worn truth that you can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took the two-tone lanyard from my hand, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. This is our relationship with God. And I love what he does here, both kind of emphasizing the fact that, yeah, you can never repay your mom, or no, we can never earn God's love. We can never work our way up to a 10 on ourselves, by ourselves. Because there's something even more profound happening. The fact that we could never earn our standing with God or repay him doesn't stop God from somehow mysteriously working in such a way to where we are now one with him in Christ. It's enough to make us even. That's the true gift. That's the gospel. And so we've said that union with Christ isn't something we have to make happen. It's already true of all believers. But what that doesn't mean, obviously, is that all of us are experiencing 
the fullness and the joy and the life-giving power that God is offering to us in Christ. And so this is simply why Jesus invites, or I would say commands, his followers to remain in him, to abide in him, to cling to him. If he's the vine and we are the branches, as he says in John, that our most important priority is to make sure that we stay connected to the vine, to remain in his love. And he says, when we let go of that, when we fail to remain in him, I don't think he's talking about losing our salvation. He's talking about drifting away from the reality of our eternal union with him by not trusting that he has already joined us to himself. He's saying, don't fall into the trap of thinking that your standing with God is based on a sliding scale of approval. The trap that leads to empty ritualistic religion or phony hypocritical activism. Don't trust, don't lose trust. Remain in my love. So do you see? God's view of you today has nothing to do with your performance yesterday. When God looks at you, he sees you the exact same way he sees his son. Because you are in Christ. Next week we'll talk about how do we live out of that union? And how do we relate to God as those who have already been reconciled to him? And I hope what you'll see is that when I talk about prayer now, it's not a way of working our way up from a three to a six. It's communicating or sharing in the communication between the Father and the Son because we're already tens. And I look at you and I don't see a 10. You look at me, you definitely don't see a 10. And the gospel is that God does because of who Christ is and what he's done on our behalf. So that's where we're headed. Ben and the band will come and lead us in a response and worship. And part of our response every week to the word of God is an opportunity to give. And I want to make sure that we know that as a worshiping community of those who are united with Christ, when, when we give an offering, that also isn't simply a way to try to work our way up and pat ourselves on the back and be able to look down on Christians who are less generous or less faithful than us. But if union with Christ is true, then it actually changes the way we see all of life, including our money and our stuff and what it means to be part of a community of those who are united with Christ. Offering simply becomes another opportunity to worship, to recognize that all we have is God's, that he has graced us with everything, with every dollar we have. And in response to who he is and what he's done, we get to generously sacrificially share that with him. So Father, we thank you so much for the life that you have given us in Jesus. And I would pray for myself, for my brothers and sisters here, that by your spirit, 
our eyes and hearts would be opened up to the reality of this good news. And I would pray that we would learn to live deeply into this reconciled relationship with you. And that as a result, we would be transformed into ministers and messengers of reconciliation to the world. That we would be those used by you to bring hope, to bring healing, to bring holistic repair to all the damaged relationships, both here in our own homes, in our own city, and wherever you're working around the world. God, we want to be part of it. We want to be with you in what you're doing in the world. And we thank you that in Christ, you have invited us into yourself. So this morning, we simply come to celebrate you, to receive you, Lord Jesus, again, and to give and to love and to worship and to pray out of a place of incredible, deep, profound, eternal security in your Son. In Jesus' name we pray.